welcome to episode 528 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, and producer, Derek M. Cook. And the song that you're hearing right now is Abandoned Land. It is a single from the Russian surf band Los Cosmos. You can pick it up over at loscosmos.bandcamp.com. Check out this single and their other albums. Follow the link in the show notes or just go straight to that website I just gave you, Los Cosmos. Cosmos is spelled with a K. You'll hear the song in its entirety at the end of this episode. What happens before now and the end, though? We've got a lot going on this week. Of course, we have Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. He's going to be taking a look at another episode of Ultraman. And this episode that he's doing actually is one of my absolute favorites. Partly because of one of the monsters in it. There is more than one monster in it. And I really kind of dig one of the monsters in it. Once you hear the Beta Capsule review and you hear which monsters are in this episode of Ultraman, if you know me, I think you'll probably know or you'll be able to guess which monster is one of my favorites. So that's coming up this week on the show. And when Mark sent me his Beta Capsule review for the week, he just put in a little note saying, let me say, thank you for what you do. I listened to older MKRs all weekend in lieu of Monster Bash and it helped. Take care. Mark, not a problem. I spend so much time with Monster Kid Radio that sometimes I kind of forget about what's going on in the outside world, but I was acutely aware that this would have been Monster Bash time. Oh man, I missed it. And I know it's happening in October, but the next Summer Bash... It's going to happen next year. I mean, I would assume they haven't really formally announced it, but yeah, that's when I'm making my return is next summer. So I'm watching the calendar now. Oh boy, another 12 months, but it'll be worth it. Anyway, back to this episode. We are talking about the movie M. It's a Peter Lorre film. It's German and it is dark and I love it. And you're going to hear me talk about how much I love it when I discuss the film with Eric J. Martin. Eric Martin is from the Cineversary podcast. Now, he's been on the show before. We talked about old time radio. This time around, we're talking about a movie. We're talking about M. This is also a particular favorite of his. And we're going to be getting into that later on in this episode. Of course, before that, we have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And it is Peter Lorre themed since Peter Lorre is the lead or is kind of the horror star of M. You know what? You're just going to have to listen to Kenny's segment as well as the conversation with Eric. Plus, we have another installment of Atomic Tales. This is the Stephen D. Sullivan written audio drama produced by him and uh, Christopher R. Mim from St. Euphoria Pictures. You know, the man behind the Mimiverse. So we have all of that in this week's episode and that's going to start right now. to take a second to thank our advertisers like Stuffed with Character and Stephen D. Sullivan. If you'd like to advertise on this stream or even the Monster Kid Radio podcast, please reach out to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I'll send you an ad sheet and we can discuss rates. Thanks again. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. 
Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print, or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. On the heels of the light-hearted rascal from outer space, Ultraman takes a satisfying turn towards horror in Episode 12, Cry of the Mummy. When an expedition uncovers an unusual tomb, Hayata and Arashi arrive in time to observe a 7,000-year-old mummy, which has a well-preserved, ape-like head. While speculating about the mummy's origin, the team notices a painting on the cave wall of a large golden monster, an observation largely forgotten as the mummy is transported to the Science Center for testing. An unknown force uses the scientific equipment to revive the mummy, which immediately kills two staff members before escaping into the night. Both the military and the science patrol are called upon to apprehend the mummy, and when it's located in a sewage facility, it continues to inflict serious injury on its pursuers. Plans to take the creature alive are scrubbed, and Arashi hits the mummy with a lethal blast from his spider shot. At that very moment, the tomb site explodes as a monster emerges from the mountainside. It's the golden dragon Dodongo, as pictured in the mummy's tomb, ready to rampage. It's up to the Science Patrol and Ultraman to stop its eye beams from setting the countryside ablaze. Cry of the Mummy is delightfully creepy and action-packed, filled with memorable images and thoughtful moments. There's a compelling, honorable sense of regret expressed by members of the SSSP at having to do the work of dispatching the murderous monsters, which extends to Ultraman himself. In an imaginative point of view shot, he hesitates before blasting the blinded beast Dodongo, appearing to pity the creature, which only minutes before had awakened from a 7,000-year hibernation. Once again, Akiko Harata lends his authoritative presence to the proceedings as Dr. Iwamoto. Hirata, who by 1966 had starred in nearly a dozen special effects films known around the world, would work steadily until his final role in 1984's Sayonara Jupiter. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Mansky reporting.
spy at large, an invisible man. It's, it's amazing. Oh, you will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Ah! Steady now. Don't let him get away. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but... So but the I... trap was all set, eh? Oh, Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh. Well, what's this? Uh, it's full of hooks. Uh, oh, they're tearing into me. I... of menace in five fright-filled features. Watch breathlessly as the coffin opens to release the terror duck. <laughs> it's only a gal and bulls, the raven. Join Boris Karloff in the most gruesome day of the undead. Black Sabbath. And there are two more blood-chilling delights. Die, monster, die. And who knows? You may die. Laughing at the comedy of terrors. Five of Carlos' creepiest capers in nightmare colors. And you are invited. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present Atomic Tales Stories of science, mystery, and excitement This episode features the latest adventure in our fantastic original series Strange Invaders Tonight, our intrepid agents venture to the Rocky Mountains in search of flying saucers and more in our story Snow Monster Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Never mind the UFO sightings, Mr. Agent, sir. The park agent said. You think they did this? She indicated the small destroyed trail cabin nearby. It looked like a tornado had hit it. A mass of splintered timbers and rubble lay under a few inches of very early snow. Avalanche, maybe, Agent Four suggested, eyeing the nearby glacier. The three of us stood near the base of the Never Summer Mountains, and they got their name for a reason. No, sir, the ranger insisted. Not lights in the sky, nor avalanche. It was the snow monster. 
Agent 4 and I exchanged a skeptical glance. The ranger scowled at us. Don't you two smarty pants federal agents look at me like that. I'm not crazy, and neither are the folks that things been terrorizing for the past weeks. A bear, maybe, I offered. Do I look like a ranger who doesn't know a bear from her backside? So you've seen it, I said. Well, no, she admitted. But some pretty reliable people have, experienced hikers. A couple of them were nearly scared to death. They said it was huge, with long, shaggy fur, glowing red eyes, and fangs as long as your hand. Nice. Four commented. And I've seen tracks. Bare footprints as big as a snowshoe. The woman ranger continued. Not a lot of hikers coming through here since the monster rumors got out. I rubbed my chin. So these sightings began at the same time as the flying saucer reports? I guess. The ranger mused. Now that you mention it, do you think the two are connected? Agent 4 flashed her his best lady killer smile. Don't worry. He said. The U.S. Science Bureau is here now. We'll figure it out. Remind me again what I'm doing here, Agent 1. Agent 4 complained as we trudged across the rocky, snow-dappled slopes. I thought you were figuring it out for the pretty ranger, I replied. Alec Boom Boom Murphy rolled his blue eyes. Clearly the allure of the local girl had worn off during our long, sweaty hike in the chilly mountain air. I mean, he continued, ignoring my repost. The army's got a line on another giant ant nest. I should be with them, blowing up bugs. Instead, we're on some yeti snipe hunt. Why don't they send Agent Seven with you? She actually digs UFOs and weird monsters. Seven's with Agent Eight, looking into that fisheries situation off the California coast, I replied. Besides, all of us go where the Terragons and the Bureau tell us. Right now, that's here. On a godforsaken slope in a mountain range where it snows even during the summer, looking for either flying saucers that don't exist, or a monster that is most likely a mangy bear. That's about the size of it. Four scowled. He truly was most at home on short assignments where he got to blow things up. But ever since my encounter with a giant ant in the desert, the Bureau had rules about agents only working in pairs, and Agent Zero had Four's number at the top of the duty roster for this assignment. Four extricated his binoculars from his overloaded backpack. He always brought more gear than anybody really needed, and scanned the nearby slopes. I wish we could leave the UFOs to the Blue Book boys. He griped. No can do. Too many strange objects in the sky associated with our bug problem. Yeah, I know. Ever since your fireflies. He let his field glasses down and pointed. Do those look like tracks to you? I trained my binoculars toward the snowfield, he indicated. Could be, I agreed. It's close to one of the sightings the ranger marked. He observed, checking our map. UFO or Yeti? Monster. I checked my sidearm and he did the same. Let's go take a look, I said. It took us the better part of an hour to hike to the slope we'd seen from afar. The snowy terrain was rough and the air was thin here. Neither of us had acclimated to the altitude, so we were both pretty winded by the time we located the tracks. We'd passed another small cabin nearly hidden under the recent snowfall on our way. Unlike the one where we'd met the ranger, this shelter remained intact. Bear? Four asked, peering at the huge prints. I shook my head. Snow's too melted to tell for sure. Weird they're in a straight line, though. Yeah. He agreed. Almost like the animal was walking on two feet. Suppose we have to follow these. I suppose we do. Looks like they're headed under that high glacier. It does. He swore. I leaned up against a nearby tree. 
We were still below the tree line, but were rapidly running out of forest as the glacier loomed ahead of us. No law that says we can't catch a breather before we go. Four nodded and lit a cigar. Not my idea of a breather, but... I've never been sure if he actually liked the things or if he just liked playing with fire. Fire often came in handy in Four's line of work. A short smoke and a bit of a hike later, we passed the last of the trees and trudged onto the glacier. The late afternoon air smelled clean but was cold enough to make my sinuses ache. The tracks seemed to head straight up the mountaintop, which remained hidden in shadow as the sun crept into the west. We kept going, slogging through the snow and ice. I wished we'd brought snowshoes instead of sturdy hiking boots. You don't have a lot of daylight left, Four noted. I have to shelter in that cabin we passed. That's what they're there for, I replied. Wait a minute. Is that blood? Sure looks like it. We hadn't noticed it before, but big, dark red blotches now stained the snow near the snowshoe-sized prints. The tracks were far bigger than any man, or even any bear, I'd heard of, though snowmelt has been known to enlarge spore. We loosened our guns in their holsters. Fort pointed. Look, some kind of carcass. The rib bones of a large animal poked out of the snow a few hundred yards upslope, near an outcrop of shadowy rock. The bones still had chunks of flesh clinging to them, and they glistened red in the retreating sunlight. Just then, the wind shifted and the smell hit us. Awful. Gamey, like rotting meat mixed with matted wet fur. Ugh! I gasped, trying to wave the scent away from my nose. Elk, do you think? Four stopped in his tracks. Ray, those ribs. There's steam rising from them. They're fresh. An ear-splitting howl echoed across the mountainside as something, some thing, leapt out from behind the rocks and bounded downhill toward us. It was huge, almost twice as big as a man. Shaggy, stone-gray fur covered its dirty hide. Fury blazed in its red eyes, and steaming saliva dripped from its gleaming yellow fangs. It stank like a herd of skunks that had been run over by a half-track. The thing lumbered toward us at a frightening clip, running almost like a human being. One thing for sure, this was no bear. Yeti! Four blurted. Shoot! I yelled. Both of us fired, but the shots didn't even slow the beast down. Run! I commanded, but both of us were doing it anyway. We needed to put some distance between us and the rapidly advancing snow monster. We kept shooting as we went, barely slowing thanks to our years of combat training and practice. Most of the shots did no good, though nearly all of them slammed into the ape-like thing's furry carcass. Then I got lucky and clipped the yeti near its glowing red eyes. That made the monster pause for a moment, and its cry of rage rattled both our bones and the snowy mountainside cliff. Come on, Alec, I cried, noticing Agent Four had slowed. If we can reach that cabin, we can hold it off. Four shook his head as he shrugged out of his heavy pack. I'll never make it unless I can slow this thing down. You keep going, Ray. I'll catch up. I knew better than to argue. In the Bureau, you have to trust your teammates, even if what they're doing seems damn crazy. Despite that, I did manage to pump three more shots into the beast as I went. The snow monster paused long enough to chuck a couple of ice boulders at me. I barely managed to duck the frozen missiles as they crashed into the trees nearby. But at least I'd bought Agent 4 another few seconds. I reached the trees with Alec, much lighter now without his pack, sprinting close behind. The creature came barreling down on us like a runaway train. Ray, take cover! Four shouted. I barely had time to shelter behind a thick copse of trees as the whole mountainside trembled. 
A rumble like the worst storm ever shook me to my bones as an avalanche thundered down slope. The monster wailed in pain and terror as tons of snow, ice, and cascading rock engulfed it and swept the thing over the side of the mountain into a deep glacial ravine hundreds of feet below. I leaned against the trees and caught my breath. Happily, I spotted Alec doing the same thing behind a nearby boulder. The snowslide had almost buried us, as well as the monster, but we'd made it. Just can't resist blowing things to hell, can you? I kidded. Agent 4 grinned. Gotta earn my nickname somehow. Nice job, Boom Boom. He nodded, as sweaty and worn out as I was. Thanks for keeping that thing off me. Did you notice the color of its blood? Yeah, green. The blood had glowed, too, like the firefly I'd killed at the start of the bug invasion. What's it mean? I shrugged. It means the doc's gonna be ticked that we're not bringing back samples. Four laughed as he lit a fresh cigar. <laughs> if Dr. Shannon Tarragon wants a piece of that snow monster, she can come here and dig it out herself. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales, brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Snow Monster, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim and featured Elliot Mim as Agent 4, Alec Boom Boom Murphy, and Emily Broick as the Park Ranger. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at stEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at paysteve.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. The House of Wax, the ultimate dimension in terror, comes to the screen in Stereovision 3D. Vincent Price at his diabolical best will take you room by terrible room on a journey to the ultimate chamber of horrors. Stereovision 3D will synthesize before your eyes the terrifying reality of it all. In Stereovision 3D, House of Wax is more than a movie. It's an experience you'll never forget. Yes, Lon Chaney was all of these. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Miracle Man, the Phantom of the Opera. The world, fascinated and thrilled, called him the Man of a Thousand Faces. But what was the secret Lon Chaney hid behind his thousand faces? What was the mystery in his life? Now, for the first time, the true story, torn from his heart, comes to the screen. Starring James Cagney, magnificent as the fabulous Lon Chaney, master of the grotesque, the weird, the strange, and Academy Award-winning Dorothy Malone and lovely Jane Greer as the two women who made his life more astounding, more touching than any of his unforgettable roles. I'll come to see you every week. Every week. I promise you. You had me fired. Damn you! Who are you? I'm from the collection agency. I've come to collect my wife.
Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today, Derek and his guests are talking about the German classic M, which starred Peter Lorre. FM featured Peter Lorre in issue 19 from September of 1962. It was a 10-page article loaded with 14 photos. Let's hear some highlights. The most fascinating man I ever met, actress Madeline Carroll once said of Laurie, a statement which interviewer Harry Land interpreted to mean fascinating in a sense that a snake is fascinating, yet somehow lovable. There is, underneath all that oddness and the strangeness and the horror of him, a naive childishness of a little boy who wants desperately to have you like him. And so, because you feel he wants you to like him, you find yourself liking him, despite everything else. This sheep in fiend's clothing was born on June 26, 1904, in the Carpathians, in Hungary, making him a fellow countryman of Bele Lugosi. He schooled in Vienna. His first job was a bank clerk. He was brought, forcibly, classically, to the attention of the motion picture world by Fritz Metropolis Lang, in the masterpiece of macabre murder, M. By 1945, movie murderer Laurie had knifed, gunned, strangled, and poisoned his way in and out of half a hundred movies, reported journalist Michael Sheridan, who continued, Not a day passes, it seems, but there is someone ready to suspect gory Laurie of lethal tendencies off the screen, and it has begun to get a little embarrassing. They won't go as far as to say I have murder in my heart, he will tell you, but they are quite sure I have murder on my mind. Once, when he was fulfilling an errand for a friend who had bought a new house, a woman recognized him and whispered nervously to the pharmacist, Isn't that Peter Lorre? The druggist nodded. Yes, he's buying four pounds of ant paste. The woman advised, I wouldn't sell it to him. I've seen some of his pictures. In issue 30 from September of 1964, Tribute was paid to Mr. Lorry, as he had passed earlier that year. Here are Forey's final comments on Peter Lorry. As I think back over Lorry's career and recall the pleasure he gave me with his Oriental Mr. Motto series and many fine character roles he created at Fox and Warner's, the magnificent portrayals in M, Mad Love, Crime and Punishment, Strangers on the Third Floor, I remember that someone once said of him that he could play anything except a romantic lead. Actually, he even managed this once in a film at Warner's called Three Strangers, in which he appeared opposite Joan Loring, who was one of two girls in Laurie's film career who loved him rather than running from him in terror. The other girl was Evelyn Keyes, who played a blind girl in Columbia's 1941 The Face Behind the Mask. Laurie even played a love scene in this one. If I had to sum up Laurie's work in just a few words, I think I might call him the master of the unusual. For even in a straight film playing a role which on paper might have looked like just another character part, Laurie's artistry managed to set it apart, to raise it to a different level, to somehow suggest a bizarre or weird quality to the character. There are all types of genius. Perhaps Laurie's lays in the fact that his genius was exceedingly difficult to describe, but easy to enjoy. Tribute was paid to M director Fritz Lang after his passing in FM 132 from March of 1977. Here is the brief statement about M and some of Foray's memories and thoughts. 1931, and his discovery, the Lord High Ministry of all that was sinister, the mad lover, the mad killer, P. 
Peter Lorre, staggered screengoers, and a teenage FJA, with his petrifying portrayal of evil in M. When Prince Sirke took Fritz Lang's leukemia-weakened body from us, the great director had already been blind for some time. For as long as he was able, he had faithfully followed Dark Shadows on TV. And he and I had sat in the front row together on opening day of Rosemary's Baby, a film he thoroughly enjoyed. His unique brain and energetic body are gone, but his powerful personality, rooted in realism yet simpatico to fantasy, will live on in his brain children, and posterity will be the richer for the rare celluloid entertainments and insights left humanity in the corpus of Fritz Lang's filmic legacy. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Yeah, this is Peter Lorre speaking. I couldn't resist the temptation to call you. I just read of your new picture that you're to make. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thanks for your interest. Oh, I thought you were magnificent in M. And just the other night I saw your new picture, The Man Who Knew Too Much. What character are you going to play in? Oh, it's the most unusual story. You know, it's a great love drama. I am to be a half-mad scientist. I, a poor peasant have conquered science. Why can't I conquer love? <laughs> he shall be shut up when it's I who am mad. <laughs> but nobody knows that. Yes. Each man kills the thing he loves. Created by man, stalked through the country, ming and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns. And fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. 
It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I know, were... I know. I too thought that we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Yugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You see that? They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. they live now. One man has already died and the other was never born. Both exist in a world between life and death. Both long to be human. Neither can ever be. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Ten dead men's bodies were used to fashion Dr. Frankenstein's infamous creature. Tens of dozens of victims have kept Count Dracula alive for three centuries. Only one of these beings will survive their meeting. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Brand new thrills, brand new horror, brand new shock. Dracula versus Frankenstein in color, rated GP. Hey, before we start this conversation with Eric and we start talking about M, I just want to point something out. I, I want to spotlight something, a lesson that I learned. Yes, I've been doing Monster Kid Radio for over 500 episodes and I've been podcasting for over 10 years now. However, you're never too old in this, I guess, uh, I'll call it a profession, even though it's kind of like a big hobby. You're never too old in this profession. This is uh, what we do here when it comes to podcasting to learn something. And, and I learned something very important while recording with Eric about the movie M. Now, this recording took place. Oh, it's been over a month now. So it's been a little while since we did this recording. And I had forgotten that he had warned me that he was picking up on some uh, extra sounds. In particular, whenever I would speak you could hear what sounds like. Well, at one point he described it as sounding like the ping, ping from like a submarine, that kind of sound. Well, I didn't hear it. Lesson for all of you aspiring podcasters out there, or if you have a podcast of your own, when your guest tells you that they can hear some extra background sound that you don't want to have in the podcast recording, 
even if you don't hear it, you take them seriously. Because I told Eric I didn't hear it while I was recording. Must not have been there. It was there. So, Eric, I'm sorry I doubted you. Listeners, I'm sorry you get to hear this kind of weird ping, ping, ping whenever I'm talking. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. It's, it's not that bad, but it was driving me crazy after the first 20 minutes of doing the edit. Also, there's one other thing that I want to mention here, and this isn't like a podcast or lesson or anything like that. This is just about something that came up on a recent episode of Monster Kid Radio, some feedback that I got on it, and how this conversation with Eric does kind of dance around something. It's not as bad as it. Anyway, I've taken a lot of pride in keeping politics mostly out of monster kid radio. I think it's impossible to talk about anything in life without talking about, or at least being influenced by what's going on in the world politically and everything else. Right. However, Despite whatever my own personal beliefs and politics might be, I don't want that to creep into Monster Kid Radio. I want to stress that I am sorry that in a recent episode something did creep in that I shouldn't have let go through. And I do make a comment, and it's me that made this comment this time around. I do make a comment comparing something that happens in the movie M to how some people have been treated in response to what happened with COVID-19 and the coronavirus. It's not something that drags down the conversation. It's just something that I bring up as an observation. I'm not meaning it to be political. And I'm sorry if anything has crept into the podcast in the past that has touched on an issue that you felt had no business being in Monster Kid Radio's uh, presentation. That's not my intent. My intention is just to provide you a little bit of distraction as we do a deep dive into whatever movie we're talking about this week. That said, let's get to that deep dive about the movie M with Eric Martin. Take it away, Dracula. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky von Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I know that a lot of times when we talk about monster movies and genre film here on the show, we don't get too dark. Uh, <laughs> some of these monster movies, they do tend to play in some dark areas, but a movie like M does kind of skew toward the more dread side of things, I suppose you could say, or, or or moody or noir, but that's okay. I'm here to hold your hand through it, as well as Eric Martin. How you doing, man? Oh, Derek, thanks so much for having me back on your show. It's always a treat to appear on MKR, and boy, to, to talk about one of my favorite movies, period. This is or isn't a horror movie, but let's just call it a horror movie, and I'll explain why, but yeah, it's one of my favorites. Um, it is a masterpiece. It is 90 years old next month. 
And I am just pleased as punch to appear and talk about Peter Lorre and Fritz Lang and the masterpiece that is M. It's a heavy movie, man. And and we'll get into it, but I want to catch up with you. What's been going on with you? Oh, just business as usual. I'm still running the Cineversary podcast every month. So we celebrate a milestone anniversary of a major motion picture. I did focus on M for the April edition of my podcast, and I had a great guest uh, Jan Christopher Horak. And uh, if you guys uh, have a chance, give a listen to that. It's anniversary Coming up in the months ahead, I'm going to be doing the 80th anniversary of Citizen Kane with many special guests. That'll be in May. I'm going to be doing a, uh, well, just uh, I don't like to tip the hat too far ahead, but uh, a lot of really good movies that are celebrating major anniversaries in 2021. So other than that, yeah, I'm still running my weekly film discussion group. That is called Cineverse. We meet weekly on Zoom. That's been going 16 years strong. And uh, yeah, still running my blog, cineversegroup.com. If you guys want to check that out and listening to your show. So yeah, there's lots of great podcasts, lots of great content out there. And I'm just glad to be part of it for a lot of uh, film fans. So always fun. Right on. Well, I'll make sure there's links to all of this in the show notes so people can follow up with you and keep up with what you've got going on. Uh, I have not listened to the M episode yet. I've been waiting until you and I had a chance to talk. Cool. And then I'm going to go in and listen to your episode. Uh, It came out mid-April. And again, listeners, show notes, check it out. Check out everything that Eric's up to. I mean, he's one of the good ones, man. So check check out his work and give him some support. When you're done listening to us gush about this movie that is just oh so affecting. Oh, so appreciate that. Appreciate the plug there, Derek. So thank you so much for that. And yeah, I continue to shout from the mountaintops about your show as well. So keep up the great work. I appreciate that, man. So you reached out to me a while back about talking about M, and I'm guessing it's because you were talking about it for your show and, and that sort of thing. And we are in an anniversary year for that film right came out in 31 that's right uh, mid-may of 31 in germany and i don't think it was released i'm not a historian or an expert on m believe me you know that's who i interviewed for my show i'd done a little bit of research i've watched the movie several times i've you know kept copious notes Uh, i'm pretty well organized here but i don't think it was released properly in the united states for at least another year or something like that so still it's a 90th anniversary since its theatrical debut 90 isn't exactly 100 or 75 or 50 or whatever but hey man if you make it 90 years everything's gravy it's great i mean you deserve to be praised on high so m especially <laughs> just as a a milestone of world cinema again it's a foreign film folks it's you know if you watch mm-hmm. it you're going to have to watch subtitles i know a lot of people don't like that and are already I don't have to preach this to Monster Kid Radio fans because you guys love black and white old horror movies. But I mean, you just try to recommend a movie like this to a younger generation, let's say, who isn't necessarily a genre fan or something, right? Yeah, it's it's already got the black mark of it's a black and white movie. You know, it's old, it's foreign, you're going to have to read subtitles, and it's it's got foreign sensibilities because it's German, and just throw all that out the window, man. This is so well done. It translates. It's a universal message. It almost plays like a silent movie. I want to talk to you about that and the elements in which it does play as a silent in some ways, but it just translates so beautifully across any race, society, culture, era. It holds up so well 90 years later. And folks, if you have not seen M, just do yourself a favor. I just absolutely adore the movie. And I'd like to talk to you too, Derek, just about how, look, I don't want to mislead anybody. If you think this is going to be like the horror masterpiece of all time, it's technically not even a horror movie. It's more maybe one of the, if not the first serial killer movie. It's a police procedural movie. It's a film noir in many ways. It's just a dark thriller. 
So it's a lot of things that we can talk about. But again, go in knowing that, you know, if you're expecting to be wowed by horror elements, it's not going to scare you. It's not frightening in the sense of, oh, he popped out of the corner and, oh, that's still kind of creepy these days. What's going to freak you out is what's going on off screen. So, Derek, I'd love to talk to you more about that. You know, that's the thing, is that this film has a lot of different things going for it. If you mm-hmm. want to go into watching a movie about a serial killer, you got it. You got your true crime aspect of it, you got it. You've got this this thriller element, you've got these noir elements going on, and you've got one heck of a performance by one of the legends, right? Peter Lorre, who's always going to have a home here on Monster Kid Radio, whether it's a flat-out monster movie or not. He's one of our guys. So yeah, we're going to support that as well. Hey, Derek, I, I've got I've to yeah. just interject really quickly while you're talking about Peter Lorre because it's on my mind. And again, yeah. I'm not an expert on Peter Lorre. I, I mean, you've seen a handful of his movies. He has 110 screen credits, according to IMDb. But here's the thing, 110 screen credits, right? Technically, only six of those are horror movies. Now, that's amazing to me because when you think of the name Peter Laurie, you instantly think horror. You think of a horror icon, and rightly so. I mean, he just has an incredible persona. So easy to imitate, so often imitated. You think of him in the pantheon of of the great horror actors. But really, other than this film, Mad Love, The Beast with Five Fingers, and those are only where he's the lead. Three movies in which he's a lead in a horror movie. But then you got three others in which he's just the supporting role. You got Tales of Terror, The Raven, and Comedy of Terrors. And I get it. There's some other B and Z grade movies in which he's, you know, appearing in a movie that could or could not be thriller slash horror. But those are the main six. Now, you think of a body work by like Karloff or Lugosi or somebody along that plateau, and they have dozens of horror movies. Peter Lorre only technically has six. Isn't that kind of amazing um, that he has earned the echelon that he has? And it's only a handful of movies. Huh. Kind of incredible. You said that, and my brain immediately went to, well, that sounds like a challenge. What movies could... Well, wait a minute. <laughs> I can't think of any others. Uh, let's see. He had, like, he had, oh, man, Invisible Agent, I suppose, is more sci-fi than horror. I thought of that. It's it's in the Invisible yeah. Man series, but it's, yeah. that's more like thriller espionage kind of stuff, man. Yeah. It's, yeah, it really is. I mean, he, he flirted with the genre a lot, but I think in terms of like flat-out horror film you're right and that's amazing yeah so again i just i didn't mean to interrupt you but yeah when you think no, of Peter Lorre, right. it's it's kind of astounding and he he deserves the kudos that he does his horror cred is legit but it's really only a handful of movies people and i think that speaks to his persona his performance his skill mm-hmm. that we put him up there with the greats yeah. Uh, Karloff and Price and all those others. Sure. Hey, I don't mean wow. to get ahead of myself, man, but oh, dude, I would love to play the whole yeah, oh, I'm not going to let you go without doing it, man. <laughs> okay. You're the, you're the boss of the show, man. You tell me how it's going to flow, but man, I just hope I get a chance. That's fun. You know what? I've actually been fingering the cards right now. The classic, classic five. five. <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and pull out the classic five? This is a game that we play with all of our guests that come on to Monster Kid Radio. Uh, it is a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question uh, on each one of these cards. There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get Monster Kids talking about their favorite subject. Want to play around? Oh, you got it, man. I've been waiting for this one. All right. Card number one right off the top here from our core deck. Oh, what classic monster movie should be turned into a musical? Oh, my gosh. Wow. You know, I'm going to say House of Wax. I think House of Wax would make a really fun musical. You know, they got the uh, original from the early 30s. You've got the Vincent Price, what is it, 1951 or so movie. uh, Or was it 53, I think? And then you've got Mm -hmm. the remake, which we're not even going to talk about. But yeah, if you think about the Vincent Price version, 
boy, that could be some campy fun, could it not? And in terms of uh, Demon Barber of uh, Sweeney Todd, right? Sweeney Todd mm-hmm. actually is a pretty good musical. And sure. it's the same kind of, you know, Grand Guignol kind of vibe where you could have a lot of fun with a story like that. So absolutely House of Wax. Well, that's an answer that I've not heard yet in regards to that. Now, you know, <laughs> you, you know, the next time I'm going to take a shower, I'm going to be in there like, you know, you're singing in the shower, you're whistling. Or I'm going to be thinking of lyrics to the movie <laughs> House of Wax, how you could kind of lyricize some of those scenes. Not that I'm a composer or anything like that, but but now I'll be challenged to be thinking about that as I'm taking a shower. <laughs> My brain's spinning right now, you know, I'm just... Wow, I'm imagining like a, a musical number between Vincent Price and the and the his partner at the beginning of the movie before he sets the place on fire and the back mm. and forth and the, yep. oh wow, you have a lot wow. of fun with that. Mm-hmm. All right, well there we go. All right, card number two, Cheney Jun- <laughs> Cheney Junior or Cheney Senior? Wow, this is tough. It's a pretty easy answer for me, but off the top of my head, not even having to think about it much. But you have to think about it because Cheney Junior. So. Yeah, boy, just he owns that Wolfman role, Larry Talbot. He's just, uh, he's, he's so firmly entrenched in the horror mm-hmm. pantheon with that. And so many movies he's appeared in that role, and he's he's just great in it. I wouldn't say Chandy Jr. is a great actor. Uh, I mean, I think he's problematic, <laughs> uh, even for his personal life, which kind of seeps in. But he is the only one of that level of, you know, along the Lugosi-Karloff kind of vein who has played all the classic monsters. And I think that there's something to be said for that, right? He's played the mummy. He's played the wolf band. He's played Frankenstein and he's even played Dracula in son of Dracula. But I have to go with senior, the man of a thousand faces, just incredible in terms of his makeup aesthetics, his, you know, his sense for design, the visage that he puts on horror, the face of horror that he created with the Phantom of the Opera and so many of the, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, so many of these classic roles that he originated and gave a face to. And if he wouldn't have died of cancer, he very well could have been cast in Dracula. And who knows what would have happened? We might not have had a, a Lugosi Karloff kind of uh, double punch there of, of greatness. It could have been Cheney Sr. dominating the landscape for years to come, but that didn't happen. And nevertheless, his body works speaks for itself. So I will go with Sr. You said that about Cheney Jr. playing all the monsters and, and he's the only one who played Talbot for Universal, whereas some of the other ones are right. played by other, yep. other folks. That said, I feel like Cheney Sr. got to do more mm. because he did his own makeup. He yep. did his own stunts. By the time Cheney was in the business, those roles were compartmentalized to different people. Uh, and, and whether he wanted to do it or not, he didn't have a choice. There was Jack Pierce doing the makeup. There's a stunt guy doing this or whatever. Yeah. Whereas early early Hollywood, <laughs> they didn't have those rules and those compartments in, in place. So yeah, interesting. You know, when I think of Senior, I think of the first image that ever emblazoned across my consciousness and stuck with me as a child and terrified the crap out of me. In my market, I grew up in Chicago. And we had what was called Creature Feature, which is basically a, a, pa- a repackaging of shock theater in which they got the Universal Monster movies and showed them late nights on Friday or Saturday or whatever, right? As a lot of markets did in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, that was my wheelhouse. And it doesn't even survive. But London After Midnight and Lon Chaney's appearance in that is so iconic to me. And that became kind of the image of the show, Creature Feature, in Chicago. You see kind of black and, well, it is black and white, right? But but kind of a stylized version of him as that vampire with the, the big hat 
and he's got his hand creeping up above his his hat a little bit as if he's threatening with his hand or something like that and those pointy teeth. And to me, that will always be kind of the visual iconographic representation of classic horror to me. And it doesn't even exist as a film, which is just incredible to me. So that speaks volumes just about Cheney Sr. and you know what he was able to accomplish. His shadow continues to loom large over you know classic horror. Sure, sure. And I, and I know people have said that they've read the novel that it was based on or, or Mark of the Vampires, a remake of it. And mm-hmm. It's probably not a great story or whatever, but no. man, if I can get my hands on that. I mean, if anybody could get their hands on that That's lost the holy film, grail. That is the right? holy grail of horror, cla- classic horror cinema. Just kind of like, you know, the Magnificent Emerson's is the holy grail of classic cinema. We may never see the light of day. They may never find it. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I hope they do someday. All right, well, we mentioned these two guys earlier, the third card. What's your favorite Karloff Lugosi collaboration? I've seen most of them. I think I've seen all of them, actually. It's pretty easy to say the Black Hat. I don't know how you can say anything otherwise. I do like the campiness of the Raven, so it's really a toss-up between those two. But I'll tell you what. I, I Okay, I think the right answer that most people will want to hear is the black cat. It's hard to argue against that, right? They're both at the top of their game and you know, just the art direction in that movie, the film direction is amazing. I have some problems with it. I'm a little bored by the story, uh, quite honestly, uh, but the performances are so good, but I actually love as a movie, even more the body snatcher, which kind of is a repairing of Lugosi Karloff. And that's, it's not a universal, it's a Val Luton production. But Robert Wise's The Body Snatcher is probably my favorite. They don't have a lot of scenes together, mm-hmm. but when they are together in that film, it is so... Man, I'm riveted. I'm riveted. Absolutely. Even as, yeah, as older yeah. men later in the game, and even with, what, a handful of minutes screen time together, I know they marketed the hell out of that as, oh, Lugosi, Karloff, <laughs> and actually Lugosi is only in it for like, I don't know, six minutes collectively or something ridiculous like that. But man, they just had chemistry. Yeah, they did. Well, that's that's a great answer. I love the Black Cat too, but I, I, I think, hmm. Yeah, what would you say, Derek? God, yeah, you know, I, I'm i going to go with the Black Cat, I mm-hmm. think, because I, man, I always come back to that one. But I also love the two of them in Son of Frankenstein. So, gosh. Oh, Oh, my gosh. I am remiss. I I forgot about that. I mean, so how could I forget about that? Wow. That has to be considered. (laughs) I'll still stick with the body snatcher only because it's so overlooked. And and if nothing else, maybe one listener will seek it out and watch it for the first time and, and be grateful that they listen to this episode. There you go. There we go. All right, card number four. What is your favorite man in ape or man in gorilla suit movie? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say it's not from the classic monster era. It's not. That's all right. It's not Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla or anything like that. Uh, (laughs) A fun part of my childhood self would want to say like a Three Stooges short, but that's not even a feature film. I'm going to go with Rick Baker as King Kong in the 1976 remake, only because it's such a guilty pleasure. When I was, what, seven years old when that movie came out, and I just thought it was the greatest thing I had ever seen until, you know, a few months later, Star Wars comes out and blows my mind. But for a while, man, that King Kong remake, I just thought was the cat's meow. I get it. A lot of people were disappointed that it was a man in a monkey suit and not the giant robotic animatronic 
creation that they promised, which only gets what, like five seconds of screen time. <laughs> yeah, if that, if that. <laughs> it's a fa- I am just flabbergasted and continually intrigued by the 1976 King Kong, just just even existing. I mean, the hubris of remaking that that original. I just, again, I, I have such nost- it has such nostalgic value. I love it. I don't know what it is. It's not a great movie. I get it. But I just, it's kind of, to me, it's like Halloween 3. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but a lot of people will say, oh, I hated Halloween 3. It had nothing to do with Michael Myers. I love Halloween 3. It's such an anomaly. That's how I think of uh, King Kong. And I don't work for them. I'm not getting <laughs> any residuals or anything. But yeah, uh, Screen Factory is <laughs> going to be putting out a deluxe edition on King Kong. I think it's, what, in a couple months. So I'm looking forward to that one. King Kong 76. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to even call it a guilty pleasure. I enjoy the movie for what it is. Man. Oh, cool. I'm not the only you one. Know? Oh, that's no, good. no. And, and I've talked about it here on the show in the yeah. past with, with uh, Paul McComas, uh, the mm-hmm. author. And, you know, he loves that movie. And he really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things about it. When I was first exposed to a lot of these monster movies as a kid through like various books and things like that. Yeah. That was the image of King Kong that was pitched to me mm-hmm. in the Crestwood House books that they put out, uh, those thin hardcover books in orange and black and white. Yeah. That Rick Baker, King Kong, is on the cover of the King Kong book. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what I knew King Kong to be for the longest time. Uh, I, I know it came out on Blu-ray in Japan. I'm excited about the domestic release. I, I've got a lot of love for it, man. There's nothing wrong with loving that movie at all. Oh, it's so good to know I'm not alone. Great. Not alone at all, man. Not Very cool. alone at all. Yes. All right. Final card. What prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own? Classic monster movie that I'd like to own. Well, I'm just going to talk out loud. It's not my definitive answer, so let me narrow it down. So you think of the coffin that Lugosi arises from in Dracula. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. You think of, what, the staff of Imhotep? Now, he has a staff in some scenes, doesn't he? Am I, am I losing it? Am I starting to go senile? I'm trying to think here. Oh, man. Or no, um, it's his ring. That's I forget the staff. Yeah, it's his the ring. ring. Yeah, yeah that's right. Ring. It's, yeah, it's yeah. the ring. <laughs> see, I have to <laughs> process of elimination. Think about it. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Wow. You think of Larry Talbot? Hmm. That the silver cane that uh, his father beats him to death would be pretty cool, right? Owning something like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, see. yes. I'm going to just stick with Dracula's coffin. I, I think that, oh boy, that would be, first off, just a giant kind of piece of memorabilia. Where would you store it? But just to own something like that, I, I doubt it exists anywhere. It, it's probably been long destroyed. But if possible, I think that would be it. That'd be amazing. How about you? What would you say in answer to this question? Well, uh, you kind of stumbled across it there a second ago. I would love to get my hands on that wolf head cane. Uh, from the Wolfman, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and I've had issues with my legs in the past, and I have no doubt that at some point as I get older, I am going to need to use a cane anyway. So I would love to have a cane with that silver wolf head on it, man. That would just be amazing. You know, it would be easy to say, because again, my, my favorite of the Universal Classic Horrors is the original Frankenstein, which is going to be celebrating a 90th birthday later this year. It'll That, yeah. one, that one will mm-hmm. definitely be on my show's anniversary. But it's easy to say I'd love to have a prop from the original, uh, what was his, his name? Uh, uh, Strickfadden. Kenneth Strickfadden, that's right. Uh, from his original set, right? But there's so many doohickeys and, and devices there. It's like, which one do you pick? The operating table that that rises up, you know, do you pick some of the electrical apparatus? It's too hard to say. You can't have the whole thing. 
So I'm just going to stick with my original answer. I'm just kind of talking out loud there in terms of, yeah, something for Frankenstein would be cool as well, right? Yeah, no doubt. I Yeah, and I would not be surprised if some of it still exists somewhere. Well, it survived long enough into the 70s that Mel Brooks was able to reuse a lot of it for young Frankenstein. So you got to hope that it exists somewhere. Yeah, I was going to say it turned up in Young Frankenstein, Dracula versus Frankenstein. I mean, it's, it's turned up in a few other places over the years. I'd like to think it exists somewhere, that somebody still has a piece of it somewhere. The Classic Five! Well, that was the Classic Five. Oh, there we go. Wow. We got that in. I, that Excellent. was, it was, I'm going to smoke a cigarette. That was, that was awesome. It <laughs> was great. Okay. <laughs> wow. All right. Well. And I, I had a lot of fun playing that with you. Uh, it was, gosh, about six months ago, you had me on your show to talk about horror mystery old time radio. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Thank you so much for that appearance. That was a lot of fun. It's hard to believe it was six months ago. It hasn't been, man. Time just time has no meaning right now. For I me. know it's it's not. You know, you, so. when you're when you're busy like <laughs> like you and me, it goes by so quickly. But here's a thought that'll blow your mind. Hey, we're halfway to Halloween. Get those jack o' lanterns ready. Part of me believes or feels or holds on to that Halloween vibe all year round anyway. Oh well, of course it's but Monster Kid Radio, closer, right? Yeah. yeah. But as we get closer, as we get closer, yeah, Marty, getting a little. I'm like, oh, come on. Please let the world be open again. Please. I want Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it'll be a little bit better by the fall, but let's hope, I, I hope, let's so. hope for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fingers crossed or fingers and tentacles crossed. As we say Absolutely. All right. So let's get back to M. Yes. Uh, we were talking about that. And at the beginning of this, I called him Fritz Lang. You said Fritz Long. What, I, what is the correct You know what? I, I'm a hypocrite. I, I alternate because I, I just Americanize my accents pretty quickly without thinking about it. It is long. Okay. But, you know, um, you'll probably hear me forget and say Lang and whatever. We're not butchering it intentionally. It's It just is what it is. But, yeah, it's supposed to be Fritz Lang. And it, you mentioned Metropolis as, uh, of course, a key work in sci-fi. Uh, right. But oh, man. Fritz Lang, man, I'll tell you, he's responsible for several really, really good movies, including some uh, key film noir movies like The Big Heat, Scarlet Street, Woman in the Window, uh, Ministry of Fear. Of course, he has a strong body of work uh, back when he was uh, working in his native Germany. Uh, of course, he left to flee the Nazis. He came to Hollywood in the early 30s. Uh, so I believe his last movie, if I'm not mistaken, before he left Germany was M. Uh, he was married to uh, Thea von Harbo, who co-wrote the story, uh, M. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess he had to leave her behind because she was loyal to the party. And so he struck out on his own in Hollywood and uh, continued to have a fantastic career here in the States. So, yeah, one of the all-time great directors. M is arguably his finest work. It, it was voted the greatest German movie of all time uh, several decades ago. And it continues to rank really high in like the sight and sound poll, among like Criterion Collection aficionados and, and film scholars, historians, et cetera. So I don't want to keep gushing just about, you know, appraising uh, M just in terms of its uh, cred as a classic movie. I want to talk about uh, how it fits into what your audience is interested in too here, which is, you know, uh, does it work as a horror movie? Is it a good thriller? Is it uh, true to what they say? It's one of the first serial killer movies. So I can't wait to get into this with you. And I said this earlier too, that I felt like this movie's got, well, it's pretty much got it all. I mean, the only thing it doesn't have is a man in a suit, right? It, it's got everything else you mm-hmm. need in a movie that's going to engross you uh, and, and just capture you and keep you riveted. Yes. One thing that I was really struck by this time around, and this was not the first time I watched it when I watched it this morning before getting ready for this conversation, but one thing that I was really struck by this time around is in the first like third of the film mm-hmm. where 
everybody starts getting suspicious of everybody else in the neighborhood yes. of who might be the who, who's the killer who's the killer oh you were with a little girl over there you must be you and not to get political here but that really struck a chord with me now considering where we are with the, the rise of asian american hate and things like that here hate crimes happening here in the mm-hmm. country yep and that sort of thing and that just really struck me and set a whole new tone for the film yeah no there's there's this, uh, this elements that have remained evergreen and that you, you know translate yeah. across the ages and the cultures that we can get into here uh, I don't want to say anything definitive uh, in terms of, yeah, mm-hmm. this works today because of this or that, but I think we can all kind of piece in the details here and there's no wrong answer in terms of how this movie works for you or how it resonates today. But I have some pretty compelling evidence here that I've gathered and talking to the experts I have doing the research uh, in terms of why this really deserves to be remembered and considered one of the greats. How do we even begin to talk about a movie like this? Like, you, you said you've spoken with some mm-hmm. well experts, people that you've had on your show, and you've done more research on the film than I have. I'm just a guy who's watched it a few times. So I think it's a masterpiece for several reasons, but I, it's not exactly frightening. It isn't exactly a horror film, but I think what it suggests is utterly horrific, and it stands as the world's first major introduction to Peter Lorre, and debatably, his very finest screen performance. I mean, he is just astounding in this film. But yeah, it celebrates a 90th birthday next month. And I'm going to summarize for you why it still resonates to me anyway. And okay, why, okay. why it's deserving of all the praise that you know critics, scholars, and fans continue to give it. So hear me out here. I think M has held up remarkably well, Derek, You know, 90 years later, because it checks the boxes across several possible genres. Sure. Horror, police procedural, psychological thriller, film noir and a man-on-the-run slash kind of chase film, if you will. And while it's certainly not a documentary, Long did intend it to be a somewhat realistic document of this era in his country. This is a time when the Weimar Republic was in power. Uh, Hitler had not you know, become chancellor yet, uh, but it was fertile ground for impending fascism when Germans were still psychologically recovering from the horrifying traumas of World War I. And also a time when real-life serial killers were running around in Germany, like Peter Curtin, who was called the Vampire of Dusseldorf, and they were making headlines. I think Curtin had been captured and uh, sentenced by this time, if I'm not mistaken. But the point is, he wasn't the only one. There were several serial killers who had traumatized uh, the uh, the public in Germany. So M, it's been hailed as one of the earliest examples of the serial killer film as well. And Although it was preceded by Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger. Now, that was made in 1927. And you can make a case that the movie The The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920 is a kind of serial killer movie. I think that M set an early template for this subgenre. In fact, it arguably isn't until we were talking about Val Luton, but he made a movie called The Leopard Man in 1943. And then a couple years later, there was a remake of The Lodger in 1944 with Laird Krigar that Hollywood would explore the concept of serial killers. So that's quite a gap. And, you know, from 1931 to then, so you can make a case, this is the first important serial killer movie. And I mean, that's just a subgenre unto itself all these years later, of course. I think M is also worth celebrating, Derek, because it serves as an innovative bridge between cinema's past and future. So hear me out on this one. Okay. It's okay. particularly interesting as a movie made during the transition between silent films and talkies, and it's very pioneering in its sound design. So here are some examples. It often plays like a silent movie with sparing use of sound. It, I think that creates greater tension and anxiety through what I will call the use of 
negative space. I'll get into this a little bit more later, but there are scenes of complete silence that are occasionally punctuated with like loud noises, like whistles or car honks or something. And it, it kind of startles you because it, it comes out of like a, a bed of silence preceding it. Film scholars have noted that M's innovative sound design was highly influential on other talking pictures that came in its wake too. Long didn't employ sound or sound techniques as a gimmick or a showy technique. I think he was, you know, truly attempting to create a soundscape that made us believe in this dangerous urban world that the characters exist in. So, I mean, there are other points here about the, the sound design, but again, I think the 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 first thing to come to as as far as an appreciation of M is is in its innovative sound design because this is really no small point. You think about. M's technique of using sounds that are sourced from somewhere outside the frame. This is something we take for granted, you know, since as long as we've been watching movies. But in 1931, letting us hear sounds without always seeing what makes the sound, that was considered groundbreaking at the time. One of the earliest, earliest examples in the movie is there's a child waiting to cross the street. Okay. And it's mm-hmm. easy to forget mm-hmm. the scene. And she quickly steps back on the curb because we and her hear a car honk. But we don't see the car yet approach the frame, and suddenly the car zooms past, and she would have been hit by the car. But that car honk off screen is something like, who cares, Eric? What does that matter? Well, for 1931, that was kind of innovative, like sounds appearing without any visual representation on the screen. Long was uh, an innovator in that sense, okay? Another way that this was innovative sound-wise is that he chose no proper score for M. He opted instead to use what's called diegetic music, music that the characters can hear in their universe in the form of, you think of Hans Beckert, the serial killer. He's whistling. He's actually whistling a song called In the Hall of the Mountain King. And he whistles it repeatedly. And it becomes what's called a motif, kind of repeated pattern. You know, when you hear it, it's associated with him. And then, of course, later, not uh, spoilers ahead, folks, but yeah, there's a blind man who recognizes that tune. Oh, geez, I'm blind, but... I remember that I sold a balloon to somebody who whistled, that must be the serial killer. So it becomes one of the first light motifs. A light motif is uh, a repeated song or, or or a pattern of music or a piece of music connected with a particular character. This is one of the first light motif movies. So no proper score, but uh, again, he uses diegetic music and a light motif, which hadn't really been done much before. Uh, he, Long, he also occasionally uses stark silence. We talked about that. It would not be plausible, Derek, that such a populated, noisy city would be so quiet. You think about it's a puzzling, bustling metropolis that the serial killer is running around in. But I think this stylistic choice fits the mood and the themes of the movie. So the first time that I watched this, there are a few moments where it just goes dead, dead quiet, but there's still stuff happening on screen. Right. And I thought Mm -hmm. I thought, well, there's something wrong with my disc. Or, or there's something wrong with the transfer. Yeah. It is an older movie. Something just might have just fallen off or whatever. No, I, I was an intentional choice. Absolutely. And it really caught your attention in a way that I found myself paying more attention to the picture than before. I'm a sound guy. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a film score fanatic. I've done sound design and sound work on independent films and things like that. This is something that I pay a lot of attention to and I really listen mm-hmm. for. And I think about the early thirties being this transitionary period between silent film and talkies and and laying along, you know, Fritz was a guy who worked in both, both sides of, of the sound line, I Mm -hmm. guess. Uh, and you can really see him bringing his experience doing silent film 
but not that kind of over-exaggerated kind of melodramatic silent film performance that you would right. associate with the stereotypical American silent film. Yeah, well said. It's, it's very subtle. He handles it very well. The performances are so deftly put on screen for us. And I mm-hmm. think because of his experience with sound and those intentional choices he made, yeah. it really kind of all works together. I thought the sound in this was great. Um, you, you mentioned Luton earlier, and a lot of times we talk about the Luton bus, right? The the sure. the shock with a sound and an image going across the screen is like a jump scare almost. And you kind of see the start, the seeds of that here a little bit with that little girl going across the street, but not really because there's a car coming and you don't really see it or but you hear it and it's just really well done. So yeah, I'm sitting here nodding along as you're talking. You're like, yep. And yep, this this is it. just yep. the tip of the iceberg, Derek. I mean, I don't, oh, I don't yeah. want to go on for you know days and days talking about this, but I literally could, man. There's so much to talk about. But I'll try to summarize and condense best I can. There's a few other points. No, you're yeah, that, that, you're just fine, man. Cool, absolutely. But I mean, for your audience, I mean, I I don't want to try your patience. But again, there are just so many examples of how this movie was so innovative and ahead of its time. You think about the the visual characteristics that the movie employs. Uh, they they hearken to later classic film noir, but earlier they also hearken to classic German expressionism. Now we mentioned the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is arguably one of the you know first not arguably, it is one of the first German expressionistic movies. And I don't know if you've talked about this on your show, but German expressionism is meant to be a very stylized, kind of distorted, exaggerated visual aesthetic in which like trees are twisted in a weird way and Mm -hmm. there's no right angles. Everything's kind of oddly contorted and and the the backgrounds and so forth are strange. German expressionism got picked up in the universal classic horror movies. You think of like the uh, art design on Frankenstein or Son of Frankenstein, for example. Uh, So yeah, German expressionism and film noir. And in terms of film noir, in terms of the characteristics that they share, you have dark shadows, obviously you have geometrically symbolic framings and compositions, exaggerated expressions, unrealistic camera angles. I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Turner Classic Movies noir expert Eddie Muller for my show. And uh, he didn't talk about this when I had him on, but uh, he, uh, he had said in an earlier interview that M is perhaps the progenitor of what would become classic film noir. It fits firmly within noir's wheelhouse with its high contrast chiaroscuro lighting design, which means like, there's a lot of shadows. There's a lot of pools of black contrasted with with lightness in a scene. It's dark and gritty urban landscape showcasing a dangerous big city full of criminals. Uh, it's foreboding sense of inescapable doom closing in on the main character and its pessimistic worldview and cynicism about human nature. These are all hallmarks of noir that you can read into M as well. So again, it's ahead of its time in terms of helping to set that classic template for film noir later, which arguably doesn't really get full steam until like the Maltese Falcon in the 1940s. So, you know, it's already 10 years ahead of the game here in some ways. It also still resonates thanks to clever filmmaking techniques we can continue mm-hmm. to appreciate today, Derek. Oh, oh sure. Here's, yeah. a, here's a case in point. Although we loathe Hans Becker, I mean, he's a freaking child serial killer. And you can only imagine, I don't want to imagine what he's doing to these kids even before he kills them. It's just just horrific. Yeah, no, We are made no. to relate to Beckert, nevertheless, and feel the tension he feels about possibly being caught. And that's similar to me to, to how Hitchcock manipulates us into worrying about, let's say, Norman Bates getting away with covering up a crime in Psycho, even before you know the secret at the end. You think about how Becker is depicted visually in this movie as having a duality, Derek. He's often shown reflected in mirrors and windows. 
And that suggests perhaps that he's dominated by his other darker half. He makes that impassioned speech about how he can't control himself later. And it's, it doesn't sound like a cop-out. It sounds like he's truly captive from this other part of his, his self. I, I also think that M, it, it particularly matters because it requires active participation from the viewer. What do I mean by that? It isn't graphic or literal in its depiction of violence. It suggests horrible off-screen violence, and it forces us to imagine the terrible things happening. I think that kind of exonerates the filmmakers and makes us more of a collaborator in the creative process. I can see where you're coming from. Can, can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? But I think I see where you're going with this. They're obviously not going to depict what he does to the kids, right? I sure. mean, okay. you, you okay. wouldn't yeah. even do that today. It's just, it's off limits. Nobody's going to tolerate that as a viewer. So you have to suggest things and you have to suggest things so subtly in some cases in this movie. And, but, but again, in terms of active participation, but just by what it suggests, it forces us to imagine some of the horrible things that are occurring. And I think that you are forced to really take this story up and and feel passionate about like, we have got it. They've got to catch this guy. But then, sure. then when they corner him, he becomes arguably somewhat sympathetic because, because again, he lays out this case that he is, you know, not in control of these impulses and he hates what he has become. Now, do you believe him? I, I would like to think you do believe him and, and Laurie sells that performance and that speaks to his acting chops, of course, which makes the movie more conflicting as a a psychological thriller, but also just as a uh, film about what would you do in this situation? If you're the mob, if you were on the jury, if you, you know, if you were in judgment, what would you do if you were one of the parents whose children was killed? So it's not an easy answer, but it, you, it requires active participation. This is what I'm talking about because it, it forces you to question your own conscience too. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, we're not going to see the specifics and, and and thankfully we don't be a totally different kind of conversation. I think if we did Mm -hmm. uh, regarding what he's up to uh, and I talk so much of what's happening in the film and our engagement here with, uh, with what's happening with, with Laurie's character, with Laurie himself, the performance that he puts in, especially at the end when he's been caught and he's on trial, you know, uh, and he's being, accused of all these terrible things he has such a desperation and and he's man it, it makes me feel uncomfortable because i know he's what he's doing is a bad bad thing and i don't want to encourage that i don't want to forgive that but if he truly can't help it oh it just makes me question so much. Uh, and I think that is part of the power of this film, right? Absolutely. And I think this is a nice segue into, if you'll, if you'll hear me out, I want to lay a case for the themes that are you know, examined in the movie. And okay. this kind of segues into, I think, a major theme or message of M, which is that true justice, it doesn't give you any easy answers. You ruminate on the fact that we aren't given any judicial resolution by the conclusion of the movie. At the end... What happens? Is Beckert put to death? Is he institutionalized? Is he jailed for life? The unresolved denouement here, it hints that there's no simple solution to a very complex problem. And whatever happens to the murderer, it's not going to bring back the killed children. That's what the mother says at the end. This isn't going to bring back our kids. Uh, The ones whom society seems to have forgotten about throughout the movie. It's like they're just an afterthought in the story here. But really, they're the tragic victims uh, throughout the, the tale. And 
Hence, the importance of the surviving mother's line about the need to watch our children. We see plenty of kids at the beginning of M, but fewer and fewer as the movie progresses. So her line becomes a statement about the need for society to be vigilant to better ensure safety. And yet the safety of the children, as I said, it seems to be kind of an afterthought to this community after the first few scenes. This this story is about the crimes of and hunt for a child murderer. But the powers that be, meaning the police, and then on the opposite side, the underworld or the mob, they seem more intent on catching him to preserve the status quo versus protecting the children. See what I'm saying? So it's a very conflicting, strange message, almost of cynicism from the filmmakers here in terms of, well, what's the real goal here? Is it to save and protect the children or to, or preserve the status quo and you know, you see what I'm saying here? Oh, sure, sure. And the way it does end with this kind of mm-hmm. you know, uh, what did really just happen here? Who who took over control or custody, I guess, of Peter Laurie's character? And then it just ends. We get that one line from the mother and then it just stops. There's mm-hmm. no end credits. There's no you know, grand farewell music score swells and then fade to black. It just stops. No, it's 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 very stark and it's meant to be quite memorable. And I think the message seems clear to me. It's that mob rule and a kangaroo court, they're no solution for society's ills. I mean, this is kind of obvious, right? I'm not trying to hammer home something that is pretty evident to most viewers, but Nevertheless, where's Lang going along? Here I go, mispronouncing his name. You know what I mean? It's easy to, to fall into the Americanization of of, uh, of accents and so forth, pronunciations. Um, but M appears to be telling us that taking the law into our own hands cannot possibly lead to a fair or justifiable outcome, even though vigilante or expedient justice at the hands of the public, yeah, that would feel temporarily vindicating, cathartic, but it's not the right thing to do. And then you know, this this cadre of criminals who exact their own brand of street justice. What's interesting here is a reading into the movie and a subtextual thing is that Long seems to be saying that it's like a chilling metaphoric foreshadowing for the rise of Hitler and his Nazi regime. So again, when you think about the underworld taking the law into their own hands, right? I think Long is making a, a kind of veiled message here about be careful, society, who you entrust to, you know, deliver justice. And put in control because, yeah, it might be a fascist regime. <laughs> so, major theme there. Another theme is if we talked about this a little bit, but dual or split personalities. And this is interesting to me because visually represented, Becker is personified in human form and by his shadow. We see his shadow quite a bit in this movie. He's first introduced as a shadow against the sign, you know, wanted serial killer. And Long's high-angle shots in his shadowy compositions, they emphasize how the child murderer's shadow seems to permeate and watch over every corner of the city, even possibly from a godlike position above the children and adults we see. Remember those real high-angle shots? But Beckard and his shadow are rarely on screen throughout the film's runtime, and even when the physical character is shown, his face and his body are often obscured or hidden. So wh- here are some examples. You think about the scene where he writes the letter to the newspaper. We're mostly shown his hands. You recollect how he's veiled behind like that trellis with the vines on it when he orders the cognac, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, I think it's really interesting because it's almost like in a classic monster movie, the filmmaker, they, he doesn't show you the monster until later. You know, you think about Jaws or King Kong or, or whatever. A lot of classic monsters, uh, 
they kind of introduce them slowly or subtly. And that's kind of the case with Hans Beckert, you could you could argue. We hear Becker tell the kangaroo court that I have to roam the streets endlessly, always sensing that someone's following me. It's me. I'm shadowing myself. So it's his shadowy self that seems to compel him to prey upon and murder children and which puts his conscience in conflict. And it's his shadow form, his role as a monster in this society that everyone is hunting for, but which has proved elusive, right? Just as a real shadow, well, what is it? It's a trick of the light that you can never touch or control. So interestingly, the more the public comes to see Hans Becker as a flesh and blood person who could be caught and no longer as a mysterious and enigmatic shadow, the monster, he loses his power by catching and forcing this pathetic figure of Beckert to stand trial before them. He's exposed as the weak and flawed human being that he truly is. But just as Beckert has two sides to him, Derek, so does every member of the street mob that captures him and quickly demands his death. Now, they too seem to have haunting shadows that compel them to kill, much like Hitler and his minions. So this theme mm-hmm. of shadows, of, of dual uh, personalities of duplicity in the film is uh, is another strong message. All right, theme number three. You ready? Watching yeah, and being watched. You think about like the high angle shots and the moving camera that are regularly on display in M, and I think that it in, these insinuate that there's no place to hide. This was a recurrent theme in many of Fritz Lang's movies. So you're gonna if you like this and kind of the vibe of being watched and surveillance and things like that, he comes back to it time and again in his other movies. The characters are being studied. They're spied upon. They're followed. Hey, perhaps by Becker, perhaps by his hunters, perhaps by a godlike eye in the sky with those high angle shots, perhaps by a curious audience who's, you know, watching the film and who rely on Long and company to give us these voyeuristic views of the players in the story. Amazingly, you know, during the sequence where the camera follows Becker and he's now wearing that chalky letter M on his back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He looks startlingly into the camera. He breaks the fourth wall, and he's implicating there the viewer as Beckert's stalker murderer. We are now following him. And hes it's almost like he's addressing us. Hey, quit following me. <laughs> it's almost like a meta, meta moment in a movie. Uh, really, really uh, innovative. All right, theme number four to me is that life is full of cosmic irony. What do I mean by that? Well, <laughs> the hunter becomes the hunted, right? Beckert. He's a predator. He becomes the pursued prey of the desperate denizens of the city. The filmmakers intercut between two very different groups, the police and the criminals. And yet there's symmetrical actions and the cross cutting between, you know, when they're having their meetings that insinuates how similar these two factions are. And that doesn't speak very highly of law enforcement. I think Long is making a statement there in terms of government and Germany at the time, of course. But I think it still resonates today just in terms of, you know, how there could be, you know, corruption or inefficiency in law enforcement today, too. But the entire city is on the hunt and has its eyes peeled for the murderer. And here's cosmic irony. Who finds him? It's a blind man who identifies him and leads to his capture. And then you think about how the the movie depicts an intense manhunt and search for justice. Cosmic irony number five, it ends with no definitive resolution as to the fate of Beckert. We don't know what happens. We have to draw our own conclusions based on our conscience, I guess. And yet another message that the movie postulates, Derek, the inmates are running the asylum. So Roger Ebert, in his great review of this movie, he did he did a series when he was alive called The Great Movies. He wrote that M is a portrait of a diseased society. Its characters have no virtues and lack even attractive vices. 
you consider that many of the city dwellers, they're depicted as what? Ugly, foul, lazy creatures. They're, they're pretty pugnacious and, and distorted looking human beings, a lot of these people, right? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, perhaps the filmmakers, maybe they're offering a social critique of what? The decadence, the sloth, the corruption, the dysfunctionality of Germany's government at the time, and its middle to upper class in particular, who often stand in visual contrast to the opposite end of the spectrum, the poor and the working class. What do we see of them? They're dressed in shabbily, sh- shabby clothes. They're forced to eke out a hard scrabble existence or even cheat the system by thieving and prostituting. So there's definitely, I don't want to say this is a movie about class warfare because I don't, I don't believe that, but again, there is contrast between the social classes in the movie. You bring up an interesting point about the city dwellers and uh, the people that aren't necessarily directly involved in the manhunt per mm-hmm. se. Yeah. It's something I hadn't considered. Uh, and now I kind of want to go back and rewatch it. I tell <laughs> you, just, just talking, darn. About, it, yeah, just, just talking <laughs> about it with a friend and, and like, you know, parsing it and so it just whets your appetite all over and watch M I'm telling you, it's a movie that rewards repeat viewings. Oh, sure. You don't have to be a film scholar to appreciate this stuff. It, it just, I've only watched it a couple of times. It seeps and, through. Yeah. It just seeps through. You, you get it after a while and you don't have to be an expert on German history of the time, the Weimar Republic, yada, yada, Hitler's rise. You could just figure things out. They translate across the continents, across the ages, the universality of the performances, the film direction. It, it just it's resonates so clearly to me anyway today. Uh, but it becomes that much more of an enriching experience when you learn a little bit more about the movie. And then you could talk about it a little bit more. You think about it more. The next time you see it, it makes more sense. It It's a more complete film. I think a lot of times when we think about at least for people outside of our immediate circles, because you and I, you know, we love classic film. I think the people listening to the show love classic film. Mm-hmm. But I think if you look outside of this particular circle, a lot of people look at these older films as cheesy or slow or boring or not as sophisticated or whatever. But you look at something like M, show people something like M, and I mean, there are so many things that resonate today. Yeah. Like I was saying earlier about you know, the turning on your neighbors just because they may or may not have done something, the mob justice elements at the end, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that there is no quote-unquote right answer when it comes to dealing with people who are compelled or wired to do these terrible, terrible things. Do we punish them? Do we put them away? Do we put them to death? And, man, hearing you talk about the way... That some of these other people are portrayed in the film i hadn't considered that but now the next time i watch it i'm going to look at it through a filter of are there things being said here when regarding classism and certain people's places in society and that sort of thing yeah i hadn't even considered that thank you no i'm not trying to say i'm a know-it-all in the movie uh, no no but that's all. one of the things that about talking about these movies i mean yeah. we, we end up illuminating certain things about mm-hmm. these movies for each other that we hadn't considered and that's why i love talking about these movies with people all the credit all the credit needs to go to long and his collaborators because it's such an intelligent movie the fact that yeah it, it continues to strike moral and ethical questions all the years later that can resonate to modern viewers the death penalty is still a controversial topic no matter what country you live in what to do with society, the dregs of society, you know, the murderers, the killers, the rapists, how do we better protect our, our children and, and, and our society? Who do we allow to, you know, sit in judgment? And what are the dangers of, of mob rule? And, and just, again, these things don't go out of style. You can continue to 
think Unfortunately, about. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 I'm not even getting into the politics per se. It's just these are universally translatable things. And it speaks to the fine craftsmanship and workmanship put into a film like this. This isn't a B pot boiler that, you know, had zero budget and they rushed out as a quickie. There was so much thought and intelligence put into M. It's definitely a cut above your, your standard movie. And again, it's not going to fit perfectly in that horror niche for people per se, right? If you're going into it thinking, oh, this is going to be a Peter Laurie spooky movie. Yeah, it's it's spooky because of the serial killer elements. It's not going to scare you per se. It's more going to force you to ask questions and think about things in a wider context. But if nothing else, and, and this is my ultimate point about M, and this is how I ended my conversation with my guest on my, uh, the current month's podcast about M. We always talk in anniversary because, again, we're celebrating an, an anniversary, a birthday, if you will. Uh, we celebrate movie birthdays. And birthdays are all about getting presents, right? But I always ask my guests, what is this film's greatest gift to viewers? That's my th- one of the last questions I ask every guest. And I answer it as well. So what I'm getting toward here is that to me, M has two key gifts that just keep on giving for me. Uh, and, and maybe you'll agree. Maybe you'll have your own, Derek. I'd love to ask you what you think this movie's greatest gifts are too. But present number one for me is Peter Laurie bar none. Like his career, you think about how it was catapulted as a result of being cast in M and what came afterward. Now that might've been typecasting and pigeonholing, unfortunately for him to many extent, but he had a, a long distinguished career as a great supporting actor in non-horror movies of high acclaim. Casablanca, the Maltese Falcon, so many movies in which we don't remember him as a horror icon. We remember him as just a really good actor. So, yeah, he'd become typecast in over-the-top horror roles in the decades ahead, but he demonstrates remarkable acting skill in this film, despite only appearing on screen, Derek, for a small portion of M's total runtime. I don't know what the total is, but if you really just went back and and pieced together how long he's actually on screen, it's not that long. Uh, His sweaty but stalwart pleading for mercy, we talked about this earlier, but his pleading for empathy before the kangaroo court sequence, to me, that's really unforgettable. And the scene where he is framed in the store window with with the reflection of the diamond-shaped display of knives, just a tour de force of of, visual design there and composition, in which we see the effect of what he calls this cursed thing inside of me take hold. That feels very authentic because... It's because of Laurie's full embodiment of this character. What he is able to accomplish just with his eyes alone throughout M is astonishing to me. So I want you to think about how wide he's able to make his peepers. (laughs) I've never seen (laughs) such perfectly circular and obtrusive eyeballs from a screen actor. Like, it's just incredible. I know he's doing some goofy things in front of the camera, but... It's not meant to make you laugh, man. He's just weird looking. That's just part of part of the charm of Peter Lorre. Oh, he's always had that. He's always had that look. Right? That baby he's always face. had this kind yeah. of bizarre. The eyes, especially as, as he gets older, too, mm-hmm. his eyes become more and more lovingly bizarre. There's just something odd about them, and I love them. But there are some scenes in this movie when he's doing nothing but acting with those eyes. Yes, and. I forget about all the other times I've seen him do weird things with his eyes on purpose in other films. Now that that scene in front of the mirror where he's stretching yeah. his, eye, his eyelids out and and doing the weird thing with his with well, his face. Well, in front of the mirror, 
there's a shot towards the end too yeah. when he's talking to uh, the person who's been assigned to defend him. Yes. And the way the light is being used, it's almost as if the brightest point of light on the screen are those two eyes of his. And I think it's the same scene. It's definitely the same scene. I don't think it's the same shot, but within that kangaroo court scene, I think of he's on his knees in front of the angry mob, right? He's explaining his compulsion. And then if you recall, it happens quickly. So you got to really pay attention, but he rolls his eyes upward so that his irises and his pupils briefly disappear. And to me, it kind of creates the image of an undead creature. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. It's like he does really interesting things with his eyes throughout the movie. And, you know, he proved in subsequent films like, you know, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original from 1934, directed by Hitchcock, in Mad Love, I mentioned The Maltese Falcon, Casablanca. He proved that he was no one-trick pony, but... Derek, this is debatably his finest and most memorable work. I haven't seen every one of, you know, his hundred plus movies that he appeared in. Uh, no, I'm not an expert on Laurie, but this is number one for me. Yeah, I'm going to go with you there. I'm going to agree with you there. I think in terms of like kicking back and just having a fun time watching a movie, this yep. is not it. No, this is not the movie to kick back with some popcorn and no. have some buddies. No, Mad, like, hey, Love, Mad Love arguably is that movie. Like, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this is not that film at all. <laughs> but that's not to say that this movie needs to be avoided. This movie does need to be mm -hmm. watched because there is so much happening here. Laurie's performance, and like you said, he's not in it very long, but it hangs heavy over everything even the whistling that's not him he couldn't whistle that, that's, yep. that's fritz lang doing the or long or whoever doing yep. the whistling right. i mean but still mm -hmm. his presence hangs so heavy over this entire thing absolutely it, it is easily i think the strongest performance i've ever seen laurie put into anything and one of the finest uh, in in the you know pantheon of horror even if you don't consider this a horror movie i do uh it's on the fringe but sure it's one of the one of the great performances to me in in this genre I think yeah. I think M's second greatest gift, and I, I, I argued this with my my guest on my podcast. Didn't argue, but I, I made the case, and he agreed. It's no less important than than gift number one, Laurie's performance. But it's Long's net use of negative space throughout the film. Now, I mentioned this earlier. The filmmakers repeatedly show, if you recall, empty, abandoned, or still spaces that were previously occupied by one or more subjects, and that suggests an eerie absence or sudden disappearance of those subjects. You think of the deserted and silent yard where the children in the first scene were previously playing, right? The empty balcony above the yard, the unoccupied dinner table, the vacant staircase, the rooms in the office building devoid of any life after the criminals flee, and that adrift balloon separated from its child and now it's tangled in the utility lines oh, this is a, these man. are all examples of negative space there's no humans present it's all eerily oh. still and vacant and you recall how the film begins after the cr quick credits there's roughly 10 seconds of black silence there's no it's just blackness then you get the opening credits i should say which immediately set this visual tone and long and his company they express emotional volumes derek with simple stark imagery imagery that earns its visual power through attrition and vacuity the absence of human beings as i said there are many other wonderful examples of stylistic brilliance that the filmmakers pour into m but to me it's the attention to emptiness that stands out the most you know, there's a scene you're talking about at the very beginning with the balloon being caught up in the wires. Mm -hmm. Right before that, I believe, it's when you see the dinner table, the uh, the plate, the, the empty plate setting. 
like you know that's where the child is supposed to be sitting for dinner yep. but the child is never coming back home for dinner right and then we eventually get to that balloon in the wires when you see that empty plate I mean, that's a gut punch. And I thought, wow, that's something else. And then you see the balloon in the wires, and you're like, oh, as if I couldn't be brought down any lower, then he does that. Exactly. Like, they don't whoa. even necessarily need to show you a weeping, you know, grieving mother. They show no, her later just, no. at the end of the movie, appealing yeah. to the audience, like, we've got to watch our children, and this is not going to bring our kids back. But Long doesn't even have to show the tormented mother. He just has to show still life images of, the absence of the child from those those environments and he's got you and and i don't know how much of that is long i don't know how much of that was his wife who worked on the script with him i don't know how that came i don't know if it's just a happy accident i don't know what it is but whatever it is it's a gut punch and then another one right after just boom boom and you, yeah. you know what's happening and you know how that mother is feeling at that moment even though you don't even see her on screen anymore now you bring up a great point just just a different tangent here but you know just in terms of like who's responsible who's the author of a film if you believe in yeah. the author theory theory then it's the director i'm of the opinion that it's a collaboration with everybody i agree with you we don't necessarily know who made this choice versus that choice or whatever we assign a name to it and it's almost always the director Sometimes we'll give credit to a screenwriter uh, if it's an original story, like, you know, in terms of co-authorship of a movie, et cetera. But I can tell you what little I know of Long. I mean, he really did come up with a lot of innovative uh, ideas and concepts and directorial choices that he deserves credit for. I can't tell sure. you to what extent on this movie, but you bring up a great point. This is a collaboration. Uh, we don't know the other names other than his wife. But yeah, rest assured, Long had his fingerprints all over M, and he deserves as much kudos as anybody for this film. Oh, sure, sure, for sure. And I, I don't want to take anything away from him at all. I mean, clearly he did incredible film before this and more incredible film after this. Mm -hmm. uh, he's somebody that, and I think I told you this before we started recording or either or maybe right when we first started, there's a lot about this man's career I don't know and I have not seen. And I need to spend the time to watch it because it really feels like there's a lot of uh, building blocks to what became modern cinema evident in a lot of what I've seen of his work already. Metropolis with like, all the groundwork for you know, science fiction and, and the noir elements in this film and serial killer. And we talked about this at the very beginning. Go back to what you were saying before. Mm -hmm. Police procedural, serial killer, thriller, noir, all of it's in here. And it's all stuff that we still enjoy now in our movies. I mean, he was from that great wave of mm -hmm. fantastic German filmmakers that were responsible for, again, setting the template for what became a lot of Hollywood films as well and what seeped into world cinema overall. You have predecessors like Murnau, uh, who created Nosferatu, for example, Habst. There are so many great German directors, uh, Vina, who uh, did The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but Long stands tall among them because of primarily two works, Metropolis and M. But that's not to say that that's only what he should be remembered for. Just in Germany, he did many, many masterworks uh, before he emigrated to these shores. But it's so interesting how he was able to reinvent his career, as I said, in Hollywood thereafter with so many great especially noirs, thrillers, dramas, uh, and different genres. But yeah, he, he was one of the all-time greats. And unfortunately, he didn't always get a lot of the creative freedoms and, and bigger budgets and things like that. Even after when he did come to Hollywood, he did have to kind of settle into a more B-picture kind of a, a realm from what I understand. But he, he was able to make so much from often few resources. And that speaks to uh, an ingenuity and a creativity 
that ran throughout his work. So even when he was given carte blanche, huge budgets on something like Metropolis, and then you compare that to uh, something like, let's say, uh, The Woman in the Window in the mid-40s with Edward G. Robinson, you, you could tell like that the talent was there. Didn't matter what the budget was. He made something fantastic no matter what he was given. And the more you see of his work, you're going to see uh, you know, some hallmarks throughout, but you're going to see some idiosyncratic uniqueness things in each movie too. So he doesn't often get mentioned in the same breath as, you know, a Hitchcock or an Orson Welles or, you know, a Spielberg or something like that. But Fritz Lang, I'll tell you what, man, he deserves to be right up there in the conversation. Uh, yeah, you're not wrong, man. You are not wrong at all. I think it's, and how many times have I said, you know, I'm going to go back and watch more of his work. I need to know more about this guy and see more of his films. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorite things about doing this show, especially with people that come from a different background than me, uh, that have different uh, films in their, you know, their background, their cinematic history. And that's one of the things that I love doing about this show is communicating with people like that and in learning more about these movies. I mean, one thing that I always worry about with Monster Kid Radio is that I'm eventually going to run out of movies to talk about. Never. You'll never run out. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen. No, because here's the thing, Derek. I mean, I don't listen every episode. I'll be honest with you. Um, what? I, I'm sorry. I'm no, just no, being, no. being honest. I don't expect everybody to listen, listen to every episode of my show, right? But, How dare you, sir? But here's no, the thing. I, I will so often seek out on your show, for example, certain films like in the Universal you know, canon or something like that or Hammer or whatever, right? And I'll treasure those as well as some of the ones that I'm not as familiar with. I'll check them out. But then once in a while, you'll revisit a movie. And here's the point. Mm-hmm. I think that eventually, even if you start running out of some of the classic classics, right, you'll probably go back and, and look at them with fresh eyes years later, and you'll talk to a different guest. And there's going to be infinite topics to discuss about those movies. They'll always be worth talking about. Because as long as there's interest, as long as even just you and one other listener, and I know there's many more than one other listener, but as long as there's mutual interest from at least a few people, man, there's there's going to be something fun and interesting to discuss, and and I think that uh, the sky's the limit with classic horror, especially even the Z grade stuff. It's fun, man. It's it 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 distracts us from all the BS we put up with in the modern day society, and it takes us back to our childhoods, and and, and it serves a nostalgic factor. But every once in a while, you also find some nuggets of meaning and even the, you know, the the lower grade films that you didn't see before. Hey, you're talking to the guy who loves Manos, the Hands of Fate, unironically. So, well, I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> I, yeah, I, that's, that's, you're out on a limb there, perhaps. But hey, I, I, I have to admire it, at least ironically. And uh, <laughs> I like the fact that there's somebody out there talking about Manos, the Hands of Fate. That's the important thing, Derek. So kudos to you, man. <laughs> Oh, man, this has been awesome. And if nothing else, you've extended the life of Monster Kid Radio by at least a good 20 movies by introducing <laughs> me or, or forcing me to look at M more, one more time. Well, so, there you go. So there we go. We name dropped a few <laughs> different movies, not only from Long, but from other folks. So if, if you dug this movie, people, go ahead, check out some of these other things by Laurie, by Fritz Long. You know, some of these, uh, some of the other examples of serial killer movies, trace that path. Like, how did we get to the serial killer modern movie we did? Well, some of these predecessors, that's kind of fun to mm-hmm. trace that path. You know what I mean? Sure. And you mentioned Laird Kriger earlier. You just mentioned him off. Check out his stuff. Check out uh, some of this other non quote unquote horror lorry work. Check out all of this stuff. There's so much uh, in our cinema history that has informed so much of what we watch and enjoy now. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the through line and the connections are one of the most Uh, fun parts of Monster Kid Radio for me is trying trying to find these connections.
absolutely and, and where things came from where and in this movie begot this movie begot that movie that sort of thing yeah no that's that's part of the fun thing about being a fan so yep tracing those following those breadcrumbs yep that's a joy so this was a blast eric thank you so much for having me on yeah. your show i'm sorry if i went longer than uh maybe folks uh had the patience for but give it a chance people if you haven't seen m or it's been a while go back you know check it out it's worth your time it's going to conjure up and provoke a, a lot of interesting thought even on a, a level of your conscience or your morals uh but it doesn't have to be a preachy movie it could just be uh, a fun kind of you know, genre film at least on the fringes that introduces you to early Lori, and that's always a good thing. There you go. All right, so to follow up with what Eric's up to, go check out episode 34 of his podcast for more talk about the movie. Um, you can also go to tinyurl.com slash podcast to find everything that he's up to. Uh, the Cineverse, exploring the universe of cinema. You can find his podcast, his schedule for his uh, everything he's got going on, different uh but just how far back does it go? 2009? Uh, we launched the Cineverse the Weekly Film Discussion Group, which met in person for its first 15 years before coronavirus. But we launched that back in 2005. So we've been going strong. Wow. And we've been keeping it going online with Zoom, which uh, may continue that way for the indefinite future. It's a lot of fun uh, doing Zoom because you're not limited to, let's say, a geographical region. You can meet with people all over the world, which has been yeah. a real blessing. But uh, no, I'm just so privileged and lucky to have a following and a strong cadre of people who really love to discuss not only classic movies, but world cinema like this, silent movies, modern movies, genre films, et cetera. And uh Cineversary, the podcast, it's, it's just such a fun, fun show because again, you're, uh, you're allowed to give a happy birthday party to a movie that really deserves it. So I'm, I'm so happy to have been given the chance to do that. And thanks for the plug. Appreciate it, Derek. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening to at least a handful of episodes of Monster Kid Radio over the years. And no, absolutely. When I can, man, there's a lot of good content out there, but you've always I know. been on I'm the radar. You've, I've subscribed for a long time. I, I got to give you credit, man. Some of those uh, Z-grade horror films, I just don't have the patience for. But uh, sometimes uh, you surprise me. Like, you'll... You'll do a show on on something I'd never heard of before, and I'm just intrigued. I got to listen. What the heck was that? I never even heard of that movie, and I'm so glad <laughs> I listened to it. So it's not just the uh, the memorable everyday, you know, Karloff Lugosi stuff. It's it's the taking the deeper dive that you do and the guests that you have. I you have such fantastic co-pilots on your show uh i gotta give you a, a hand for that as well well there's this guy named eric martin that i'm a little question you know i question sometimes but ever otherwise yeah, all my guests are pretty good i hear he's sketchy you might want to steer clear that brings us to the end of this episode of monster kid radio thank you for listening thanks for being here thanks for being part of the conversation part of the community thanks for sharing posts about the new podcast coming out retweeting tweets that sort of thing. I just appreciate you helping to boost the signal. And I would appreciate any feedback that you have for the show. I've got a way for you to do that. If you want to talk about anything that's come up on this episode of Monster Kid Radio, any of the previous 520-something or other episodes, how do they do that? Monsters in the Machine, let the people know. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. Monsterkidradio at gmail.com is the email address. 
That's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. That information is also available on our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on this episode. Eric Martin's anniversary podcast, you're going to find links to that. What Mark Matsky is up to, you're going to find links to that. Amazon affiliate links to pick up and add to your permanent movie collection things like M or Ultraman, you're going to find links to that as well. In fact, a note about the Amazon affiliate links. I know I bring this up quite a bit lately, but I just want to stress once again, if you're going to do any shopping at Amazon, please consider using one of the Amazon affiliate links at monsterkidradio.net to begin your Amazon shopping experience. Here's why. Even if you don't buy Ultraman or M or anything else that I've got listed as an Amazon affiliate link, if you use that affiliate link to begin your shopping experience, you're still helping out Monster Kid Radio. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It just takes a few pennies out of Jeff Bezos' pocket and puts it into Monster Kid Radios. And believe you me, at this point, every little bit helps. So please consider doing that. You're also going to find links to the band, which we'll talk about here in a second. And you'll see a note about what's coming up next week. But I'll go ahead and I'll tell you now so that, well, you're prepared. Next week, we've got David Heath coming back to the show. And we're going to be talking about a movie that, well, it's kind of a personal favorite of mine these days. First time I saw it, probably not so much. But these days... I kind of love it. The Astro Zombies, subhuman electronic transplants that mutilate, torture, and kill in an orgy of blood-splattering horror beyond your imagination. Their creed was to kill, kill, kill. Watch as a deranged scientist transfers beating hearts and throbbing brains from living bodies to create the Astro Zombies. Horror, suspense, and chills tear at your senses as Wendell Corey and John Carradine match wits in the blood-drenched color film The Astro Zombies, coming soon to your local theater. Watch it and die a thousand deaths. So that's what's coming up next week here on the show. I've got a number of other recordings planned, some other things scheduled. So just stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net to keep up to date with everything that's happening here on the podcast. This Saturday on the Twitch stream at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio or monsterkidmovie.club, it's Peter Cushing Day. We're going to be showing a number of Peter Cushing films in the Monster Kid Movie Club. It's free. There is a live chat that happens the entire time. There will be a new giveaway sponsored by Stuffed with Character. If you're not familiar with Stuffed with Character, check him out on Facebook. Tracy Morris makes some really really cool figures and she's got a brand new figure going up as the giveaway on this week's Monster Kid Movie Club. So come join us for that. Next Tuesday, we are taking a break from the Monster Kid Astronomy Club. So, yeah, just as a heads up on that, there won't be anything happening on Twitch on Tuesday of next week. So make sure you join us on Saturday to get your Twitch experience and then next week's podcast and then the next week and then the next week and then the next... Yeah, you know, it's, it's an endless cycle that I love. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Abandoned Land. That is a copyright 2020, Los Cosmos. You can find them at loscosmos.bandcamp.com. Los Cosmos is spelled L-O-S-K-O-S. MOS.bandcamp.com. You can pick up Los Cosmos. It's just a buck for the digital track. And while you're there, you can check out their other releases as well. I'm a big fan of this band. Big thanks for them letting us play their music here on the show. 
My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.